This is Self Work, and I'm Dr. Margaret Rutherford. At Self Work, we'll discuss psychological and emotional issues common in today's world and what to do about them. I'm Dr. Margaret, and Self Work is a podcast dedicated to you taking just a few minutes today for your own self work. Hi, and welcome or welcome back to Self Work. I'm Dr. Margaret Rutherford. I'm a clinical psychologist. I've lived in Fayetteville, Arkansas for over 25 years now, and I started self-work in order to try to extend the walls of my practice to those of you who might already be very interested in psychological and emotional issues. Maybe you're in therapy. To those of you who have been just diagnosed with depression or anxiety, or you're having a relationship problem that just seems out of your reach, or the third group, those of you who might never consider darkening the door of a therapist, but are just curious enough to listen to someone like me. Most of you know who are regular listeners to self-work that I've written a book called Perfectly Hidden Depression. And wow, the questions about PhD, as I like to call it, are pouring in. And of course, this honors me. But also, there's understandably a lot of confusion. Is the depression that's covered up by perfectionism the same as classic depression? And so many others. So I thought that today I'd answer some of those questions. They're really good ones and deserve time and attention. I need to say, however, that in this type of episode, self-work isn't therapy. I obviously don't have a therapeutic relationship with people who write in, so I encourage each and every one of these listeners to seek therapy locally or online. And if you need to take the book or a podcast into that therapist and begin the session with, I'm very often not who I look like I am, then that's where you start. I well remember one of my first patients who came in because of my writing saying, there's no way I'm going to tell you everything at first. I can't do that. And she didn't. It took her several months to open up. And even then, she'd watch me closely to see if I was somehow going to shame her for what she'd revealed. She was like a deer watching me to see if I came too close or if she was safe. I reassured her that she was in charge, not me. And we went on at her pace. I want to remind you of the special offer from BetterHelp, who is a sponsor of this podcast today, that if you try out www.trybetterhelp.com slash self-work, that's trybetterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash self-work, that you'll be able to start that online therapy and at a 10% discount because you've used self-work in the link. I'm really a believer in online therapy. I tried out BetterHelp way before I suggested it to all of you, and I was very impressed with a therapist who helped me. They were thorough, they were highly available, and they're licensed professional counselors who are matched to your specific needs. So again, it's trybetterhelp.com slash self-work. Give it a try. Now could be the right day to do it. So let's get back to Perfectly Hidden Depression. And there's not one listener email today, but six. Thank you all for writing in. So here we go. I've recently read Perfectly Hidden Depression and found it helpful to understand more about self-compassion. I think I cope fairly well, but when some previously compartmentalized feelings surfaced years after I'd left a difficult situation, I still didn't know how to deal with them. I'm not sure even how to connect with those feelings. Just face them, feel the pain, and then they'll go. I also think my difficulty is that my trust with my parents is at stake. 
If I admit feeling hurt, it means that my parents had hurt me. But I still want to believe that they had my best interest at heart, even when they said those hurtful things to me. How can I resolve this? I'm also interested about naming my inner critical voice, something I say to do in the book. Why does that matter? So that I can kindly ask that voice to go away? Thank you. So here's my answer. It's certainly true that if you haven't connected with feelings in a long time, it's not easy to do. But the goal isn't to get them to go away. The goal is to manage them, to understand where they are coming from, and to have compassion for yourself for even having those emotions. To allow yourself to feel them by finding a quiet space and time to do so. Then you write about them. It certainly sounds as if an issue for you is protection or loyalty towards your parents. I remember when a therapist said something negative about my mom once years ago, I walked out of the session. I was so protective. I sheepishly called back a few days later and admitted he'd hit a sore spot. Acknowledgement is what's key here, not blame. Some parents intentionally hurt and abuse. They absolutely know what they're doing, but some obviously do not. So you acknowledge how any child would feel hearing those words. You can even write a letter to that child offering solace. There's a huge difference between acknowledgement and blame, and blame keeps you stuck. Again, naming your critical voice or your anxiety or shame is not to get rid of it. It's to detach from it, to steal away some of its power over you, because it's not your voice. It's Bob's, as I call mine, or Gladys's. I have a patient who calls his Gladys. So I hope that's helpful. Here's the second message. I am 19 years old, and I think I suffer from perfectly hidden depression. For as long as I can remember, I've always been a debilitating perfectionist. Now I'm deep into my college career, having earned a full-ride merit scholarship to school. I have yet to receive an A- minus or below in any class, and I absolutely define myself by my achievements, and I put myself into competition with every person I know. That statement made me so sad, because what potential does she have for any kind of intimacy? And it certainly starts building up a loneliness. So I continue with her. There's a part of me that knows I'm not really happy. There's an even bigger part of me that has resigned myself to not even expecting happiness anymore. I never really thought that could be characterized as depression because I'm constantly motivated to achieve. But it's also apparent to me that my motivation is based in fear. So here we go. Here's that question of, is this real depression or a different kind of depression? And my answer, what I've learned is that the depression that's hidden under perfectionism still may not fit the classical criteria for depression. However, what does tend to emerge is a deep sadness and longing for actual connection. There is despair, fear. When the mask is off, there can be an almost flat affect or flat emotions. Like when the persona comes down, there's not much left. Without the mask, there is emotional confusion and even numbness, fear of being found out, fear that you can't put the mask back on. You can feel helpless and even hopeless, and that's depression. But when you learn to risk living without that mask, the range of your emotions can slowly grow exponentially. And her email continues. Anyway, while I'm very happy to find a name for something that describes me, I'm afraid of admitting that I have any form of mental illness. I should be smart enough to handle this on my own. And I've tried therapy three times and it didn't work. My answer, this paragraph is so full of pain it's hard to hear. First, PhD isn't mental illness. Depression is, of course. It may be that you had therapists who weren't tuned in, or it could be that your walls were so far up 
You wouldn't let therapists into your real world so that they were ineffectual. I'm not sure where you came to believe that you can think your way out of sadness or despair. You can manage emotions with your thoughts and perhaps soothe them, but your emotional life has its own unique place in your life. In fact, part of the problem may be that you prefer staying in your head. That's great that your rich mental life has helped you and that you're aware of what you're saying to yourself, but depression, even perfectly hidden depression, can lie to you. And she goes on, however, I fear even more that I'm living in a state of denial. I don't want to keep looking forward to my escapist mechanisms, food and TV, as the best part of my day. I want to feel genuine joy and pride. Right now, every time I achieve something, I don't feel happy. I feel the relief of having avoided failure. Wow, there's so much more vulnerability here. Do you hear that? And good for you. Food and TV shouldn't be your sole source of enjoyment or respite. There is such sadness in all she feels is the relief of having avoided failure. She also asked the question, have you found a correlation between intelligence and perfectly hidden depression? I personally think being gifted leaves me vulnerable to other forms of depression, such as existential depression, but I would love to hear your thoughts. And I answer, you can find references that state that gifted students or those that are labeled that way may display more perfectionism, but there's also a huge cultural component with social media influences and others. And here's the last part of her email. Lastly, throughout the process of uncovering what's behind my denial, how can I embark on this healing process while knowing it won't jeopardize my work ethic or career path that I've worked so hard for? And here's my answer. That's certainly what's hard, because you believe that having a thumb in your back constantly is what makes you successful. To learn that it's not, that your desire to do well is innate, is part of the gift you want to give yourself. But also switching from goals being only about accomplishment to more about the process of learning is where the healing lies. So you have to confront that fear. So here's a third listener email about perfectly hidden depression. Thank you for all the ways you're reaching out. Your podcast, Facebook page, Instagram, and of course your book, are helping me understand myself better and giving me ideas for how to move forward. That just pleases me so much. Now, she's referring to the book here. The emotional closet you wrote about in chapter two of your book is so me. Closets were literally a place of hiding when I was little. For hours, I sat under piles of blankets with a flashlight escaping into my imagination. I created stories where instead of feeling ignored, plain, and less than average at everything, I was the one who won all the trophies, was told by everyone how pretty I was, and heard my parents say how proud they were of me. Today, just like Fibber McGee's closet from the old radio show, my emotional closet is overflowing. Opening the door is scary. An avalanche of fears, worries, anger, self-doubt, and anxiety will come tumbling out. The loud noise made by all of these feelings and thoughts clattering around might bring too much attention from too many people. They could see how messed up I really am and be both annoyed and disappointed. The reflection exercise you described is going to be challenging but very much needed. I just need to start out by recognizing what is there and then prioritizing them to show how difficult they will be to connect. That seems a great way to start. Attached below is a drawing I made that shows myself trying to hold back the overflowing contents of my closet. It's a baby step, but one I think moves me forward. 
So just like the first listener, she's talking about trying to open up that emotional closet and all the feelings that lie within it. So here's my answer. I can hear the fear that others will notice that you're different if you begin to get out those things in the closet. But I was so glad to hear that you're following some of my directions and taking it very, very slowly. Just doing a checklist of what you think is in the closet before you ever try to connect with the emotions may stir you up anyway. And actually, your drawing was fabulous. I wish I could show it to my audience. It's of a person struggling with all her might against a door that's just bursting at the seams, bulging open in an almost grotesque fashion, full of suppressed emotions and memories. Other people have sent me in artwork, and it's just so special. I have absolutely no ability to draw or paint, so I'm always amazed what people can do. But I thought this particular email was very poignant because she is following the directions, and the directions are there, the reflections are in the book to guide you very carefully, because this is a difficult process. In fact, I have one review on Goodreads that actually criticizes the book. The reader said, I loved the first three chapters of the book, but then it turned like into a therapy session, (laughs) and she didn't like it. It got hard, and it's supposed to. This next email brought a tear to my eye. I'm only 34 pages into your book and had to put it down to send a note of gratitude. In just these few pages alone, I found immense comfort, validation, and hope. Coming off of a particular heavy depressive episode last year, I've come to realize with the help of your work that I need to and can find a healthier way to emulate an immigrant mother who preached absolute perfection and self-dependence. I now recognize the pain of never learning to reveal vulnerability in both of us and hope this book can also help equip me with the ability to have a heart-to-heart with her about something that's felt so abstract for so long. Thank you for saving me a lifetime of inner turmoil. I'm grateful to have come across your work at 24 years old as I can now look forward to many more years of working through PhD to live a more peaceful and fulfilling life. So here's my response. This listener is obviously someone who greatly admired her mother's independence and desire for high achievement, but is now mature enough, as well as it sounds like she has certainly suffered enough, to realize that the cost was far too high for both of them. I can only hope her mom responds in a way that she hears her daughter's admiration, but also hears that the highly restricted path isn't the one her daughter will choose, as she's already experiencing classic depression. I was talking with one of my African-American patients last month who talked about just this, that her skin color mandated that she be even more perfect because the fear that she'd be seen as less than if she didn't do three times what others did was a reality that she'd lived. I've been white all my life. So the only thing I can relate to here is that I've often felt as a woman that I had to do much more to get the same attention or respect as men. It's better now, but certainly not gone. There was a huge study, in fact, that came out when I was in graduate school that not only would payment for psychological services be decreased as more women entered the field, but that respect for the field of psychology would decrease in general. That infuriated me. But it's also made me work harder, especially during these protests that are so moving, and yet the origins for them are so painful and unnecessary. My heart goes out to anyone in this situation. I can very well see how it complicates things and makes the change out of perfectionism that I'm suggesting much more difficult. Of course, I'm speaking to people here in the United States, but I'm sure this kind of 
ramped up perfectionism can be true for many people who are not in the majority. Here comes the fifth listener email. I haven't read your book yet. I'm busy listening to the podcast. But is it possible that perfectly hidden depression can be escalated by an event? I am 25 years old. I recently lost my brother and started to struggle with anxiety. It's worse when I think about him or someone mentions him. I mostly avoid the topic of him as a coping mechanism. Listening to your traits of perfectly hidden depression, I realize that I have most of it. And here's my answer. First, let me say how sad it is to me that you lost your brother. My brother and I had many, many years together, and he died last year, and it was still very tough. So my heart goes out to you. The answer to your question, however, is a strong yes. I just talked to someone yesterday who also identifies with perfectly hidden depression, how she'd read the whole book without doing any one of the exercises because she needed to stay in her head, not her heart. My guess is that your grief is trying to get your attention through the panic, and yet you may not have had much practice at allowing sadness or pain to emerge. I'd really recommend getting the book and slowly and carefully doing the exercises, or you might consider opening up to a trusted friend or therapist to help you. You could also consider a grief recovery group, then wait until you feel more stable and could talk about him more easily, and then begin your work on your perfectionism. Sometimes there are more important things to focus on first before you work on your perfectionism. This is actually true of many things. For example, I've had people write in that they're dealing with eating disorders, binging and purging or anorexia, and they want to work on their perfectionism. Or perhaps they have an addiction of some kind. And I always say to them, it's better to work on that problem first because with the anxiety of trying to let go of that perfectionism, you are much more likely to have more anxiety and thus have the tendencies to restrict more or binge more or drink more or smoke weed more, whatever your particular addiction is. Addictions really need our attention before you deal with deeper work. It doesn't mean that you can't do it, but it's not the ideal way to do it. So here's our last email. After listening to most of your podcasts and recommending them to my clients as version of inquisitive homework, I've just finished reading your book entitled Perfectly Hidden Depression. I love that term, inquisitive homework. (laughs) I have tears streaming down my face. I, too, have been a lifelong perfectionist, driven by a need to be accepted and not rejected as an adoptee. I also went on to be somewhat rejected by my adoptive parents in my mid-teens when they were too consumed by my father's affairs and my mother's suicidality which only serviced to fuel my sense of perfectionism, I'll show them, an intense desire to protect myself from vulnerability by building a false sense of security that I called independence. Over the years as a clinical psychologist myself, I've worked largely with those with eating disorders. I never had an ED myself, but I saw my adoptive mother berate herself, and sometimes me, about her looks and weight, and she was forever on a diet and still is. She only ever complimented my looks, which again fueled my desire to be seen as a person beyond the surface, so I went on to further study. In my early years as a psychologist, I'd come across many documents on perfectionism and their links with depression, but it wasn't until I read your book that I finally realized why they never quite seemed right to me. The reason was that they never went deep enough. They simply focused on self-worth being dependent on unrelenting standards, but never described why those unrelenting standards existed. Your book has finally answered that question for me. 
It's been a light bulb moment for me and one that also explains why I have loved working in the area of eating disorders for so long because it's about the person and how they see themselves as well as trying to figure out why they developed this ineffective coping mechanism that they did. I've also read those texts in a very CBT or cognitive behavioral manner. Change your unrelenting standards, then your problem will be solved. Oh, gee, why didn't I think of that? Because it's not that easy. The unrelenting standards themselves are coping mechanisms that deserve time and attention. They deserve to be listened to and explored. It is only then that we can see that the masks we wear have been there for a reason. And when we're ready, we need to start peeling away that mask and replacing it with more effective coping mechanisms. We can't just simply change our standards. We need to lean into them, act with curiosity, and be kind to ourselves. After all, we're perfectly imperfect. I want to tell y'all that I did answer this, but it really truly needs no response. Actually, she said it far better than I. In doing a lot of interviews in the last couple of months about perfectly hidden depression, I've been very affirmed by how other people know that this message is so important, that people are getting lost. They're falling through the cracks of our mental health system, and the shame that they feel in even trying to reach out is so great. As the listener said, I should be able to figure this out. But this last email really points out that you have to understand the why. You have to go back and acknowledge it. You have to go back and heal. You have to go back and understand. And you have to go back with compassion and self-acceptance. It's not important whether your problem is perfectly hidden depression or anxiety or whatever. Knowing the why is so vital. There could be cultural reasons. There could be other reasons. There could be social reasons. But sometimes looking at our family backgrounds are very important not to blame, but to acknowledge. Thank you all so much for being here today on Self Work. Someone this week left me a new review on Amazon for the book, and I so appreciate it. It was actually a review, and that means the world to me that you put down in words what the book had meant to you. They don't have to be eloquent, but I do need them there, and I would be so grateful to any of you who can anonymously actually leave a review. And of course, your reviews and ratings on both Amazon and on Apple Podcasts for self-work just are fantastic. We're attracting together more and more listeners to self-work. So tell a friend, spread the word, so that our self-work community can grow. There are lots of ways of getting in touch with me. You can email me like all these people did, and it's confidential, at askdrmargaret@drmargaretrutherford.com. I'll answer as many of those as I can, but I read all of them. You can also subscribe to my website at drmargaretrutherford.com. Not only will you get a free ebook called Seven Commandments of Good Therapy, but you'll also just receive a weekly newsletter with my weekly blog post and podcast. So it's an incredibly easy way to keep up with self-work. I'm having fun on Instagram. I really didn't do much on Instagram until about this time last year. And I've really learned that it's so much of a better way, I guess because of the messaging system, to actually have conversation with people about the post. I've met Dr. Karen there. I've met Kimberly Quinlan there, both really great podcasters. And I'm enjoying just getting to know all of you. 
So my Instagram handle or whatever you call it is Dr. Margaret Rutherford. So join me over there. And I do have a Facebook group. has about 2,200 members at this point from people from all over the world. That's facebook.com slash groups slash self-work. Facebook.com slash groups slash self-work. So thanks for being here today. Take very good care. I'm Dr. Margaret, and this has been Self-Work.